Hope everyone's doing well. Welcome to the Magia Mindset. You cannot talk about college soccer in America without mentioning our guest. In his 43rd season at Ohio Wesleyan University, two-time national champion, nine-time Final Four participant, United Soccer Coaches Hall of Fame coach, it is my absolute pleasure to welcome our guest, Dr. Jay Martin. Roll the intro. Jay, thank you so much for putting in the time. I know during this uh, 2020 pandemic, all the stuff that's been going around in the world of sports, uh, especially in the NCAA, it is a truly busy time. And I know your plate has been full, but I, again, truly appreciate it putting in the time to jump in on us and talk about the beautiful game. Thank you very much for having me, Sean. Of course. So what I, what I want to kind of get into is get into the NCAA. And the first days of you coaching till where you're coaching today, what is, if we got to start off right off the bat, your preseason into season, how did that look at the beginning of your coaching career? Preparation, your fitness test, periodization at that time, technical work, and how did it evolve till where it is today? Good question. Um, as you know, the NCAA has become more restrictive over the last, well, I've been doing this for four decades, over the last four decades. Uh, when I first got here, our preseason was uh, two and a half weeks long. Now our preseason is, uh, consists of six, 16 practice sessions, which is about 10 days. Um, and editorial comment here, Sean, what's happened in Division Three? In my opinion, Division Three has become the whipping boy for the NCAA. When there are scandals in Division One, they make cutbacks in Division Three, and that kind of that kind of is is a way that they can you know say okay, well we're punishing people and blah blah blah, and I mean that in all honesty. And so um, it's been very very frustrating. As an example, <clears throat> in the spring when I first got here, we could play up to six games. Mm. We get one now, you know, one and an alumni game. Wow. And you know, college athletes, they want to play. I mean, it, it doesn't take away from their academics at all. I mean, we get good, uh, we've had 12 Phi Beta Kappas in my 40 years here. I mean, we got kids who academics are important, but so is the, ability to to play soccer to blow off some steam and do something they love so yeah and then another big change when i first got here we coaches coached um you know the four pillars of course technique and tactic and mental and physical coaches would coach one of those at a time in a practice session for example we'd have warm-up and then the first 20 minutes we might have some kind of techniques activity and so on and so forth and then slowly over the years uh, we are now into what's called global coaching so what we do is each activity that we do now we try to incorporate 
all four of those pillars instead of just having the, the players stand in line and dribble through cones, which is emphasizing technique only. There's no, there's no mental about that. There's no physical about that. There's no tactics about that. So coaching, I think, generally has come a long way. Um, and I think the biggest change, and I think one of the reasons if I'm perceived at all to be a successful coach, one of the reasons, Sean, is since the day I set foot on campus and I coached lacrosse and soccer my first nine years, and then I became athletic director, but from the moment I set foot on this campus, we have worked on the mental side. And I think you know, in the late, I started here in August of 77. And trust me on this, nobody was doing anything on the mental side of the game at all. And still today, I think that's a big fault of coaches. I, I don't think coaches understand the impact of, of the mental side of the game. In my opinion, as you go up what I call the athletic pyramid, and it becomes more competitive, obviously, from high school to college to pro and, and so on and so forth. The mental becomes more and more important. The physical differences between my son as a head coach in the USL championship, the physical differences between his players and the players in the MLS are, are, are slim, maybe none. But the mental difference is why those players are in the MLS and Ryan's players are in the USL championship. So we've done, when I was in graduate school, getting my PhD at Ohio State, I had a couple of courses at the end. I just needed two credits to get out of there. So I took a course in the business graduate school. It was called Management by Objectives. And in those days, you've probably heard of it. In those days, it was a brand new concept, which was, which was a way that, that uh, employers could motivate their, their workers. And it was based on a one-on-one -on -one situation based on goal setting. And then, um, you know, from that goal setting, those workers would get a raise or a bonus or what have you if they reach their goals. And I sat there for the entire semester and I kept saying to myself, you know, I can do this in sports too. So I changed it from management from objectives to motivation by objectives. And since the day I set foot on this campus, all of my teams have done this goal setting, every single one of them. And we've been pretty consistent and pretty successfully consistent. I doubt it has much to do with the coaching, but I know it has a lot to do with goal setting. Very, very, very important. So slowly coaching has gotten better in this country, but look, Sean, I'm in my 70s. I'm opinionated. I think all people in their 70s get opinionated, but I still think soccer coaching in this country has a long way to go. It's not quite there. When you look at probably yourself and, any, and me, any other coach, we probably got into coaching because we had some success playing, whatever sport it was. But what, what happens, Sean, is a new coach, and I'm here in the department at Ohio Wesleyan, I've got a department filled with new coaches who are very, very young. All new coaches know are the two hours between four and six or whenever it is they practice. That's all they know. They don't know about the work that goes into those two hours by coaches. So they show up at a place like this 
And, um, and John, they, they just don't get it. I mean, they, they, you know, they, they, they show up at 11 o'clock in the morning, they go out to lunch with some of their buddies, then, then they go to practice because that's all they know. And they don't, as a rule of thumb, they don't do a lot of research in coaching, in their craft. Um, and I've become like, in the department here, the AD has me giving, giving uh, sessions and seminars to these young coaches about team building, team cohesion, all of these things that are so important. And, um, and I have a semi-relationship with Mike Krzyzewski over the years. If you were to ask Krzyzewski where X's and O's are in his priority list of top 10 priorities in coaching, he would tell you there's seven or eight. And I, and I agree with that. I mean, empowerment, relationships, all of these things are well ahead or should be well ahead of, of X's and O's. And so coaching has evolved. Coaching and our sport has gotten a little better. I think um, I wish that we had better and more qualified coaches with our young players. As you know, in, in Europe, some of their best coaches do the youth programs. You know, Bertie Volks from Germany, he was the national team coach for a short period of time. But for 20 years, he was in charge of the Germans, German U-17s. And they didn't win one tournament in his 20 years, Sean. Not one tournament. But his players have won three World Cups because they didn't care about winning and losing. They just went out, and his job was to teach these kids how to become soccer players, how to become professionals. And so who cares? They, 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 U12 tournament, U17 tournament, I mean, really, who cares? It, do, it doesn't matter in the end. And so our country still has philosophically – I think a ways to go. I know I just rambled there and I apologize, but I've got a lot on my mind. No, I mean, it's fascinating to, to see the evolution within our states, but there, I don't think there's any, as a coach, any harder environment to be into than the college game because you're dealing with the student athlete. And I think in the professional game, uh, especially with the men, you have to manage X amount of stuff. If it's on the field and you're trusting what they're doing off the field. But right now as a, as a leader in your role, you got to be sure that your students are keeping a certain GPA. Um, Your athletes are being optimal in their performances. What are they putting nutrition wise in that? They're still young athletes that maybe are coming from environments before coming to your program that didn't educate them on nutrition performance, especially in today's era. They might not have the professional mindset. In a leader role, how do you manage the overall student athlete of your team? Is it through your whole coaching staff that you manage them. Everybody has responsibilities of observing um, your student athletes on your team to be on off season during the time, maybe on season, there is restrictions like this in the December, January off season on their own. They got to be responsible for this or freedom in this. And then in the spring season, summer season, it looks like this. What is it that you have to do to manage that on a year-round basis as an overall student athlete to have the success you're having? 
That's a good question. And I think uh, it's a diff- difficult one to answer, Sean, because I think a lot in my case mm-hmm. depends on the skills and strengths of my assistant coach. Some of the assistant coaches didn't care much about academics, so I wasn't going to have them follow it because I know I knew they wouldn't do the follow-up necessary to watch the kids. Some are very good at that. And so I tried to assess the strengths and weaknesses of our assistants and assign, uh, assign jobs accordingly. Um, and also, I want you to remember, I'm also a faculty member here at Ohio Wesleyan. I'm a, for what it's worth, I'm a full professor. And I think there are times when it's frustrating for me because I look at these other coaches. When I first started in September, August of 77, um, and my, my, my doctoral dissertation was on leadership, and it was on the differences of leadership between Division One and Division Three coaches. Um, so I, I surveyed the top 25 soccer coaches in Division One and Division Three. In 1977, all 25 coaches in Division Three were faculty members. Today, I was the only one last year who's in the top 25 who was a faculty coach. So, so this has been a problem a, a number of ways. Um, I don't care how you coach it, even though we're Division Three. If you're not a faculty member, and if you don't win and recruit students, you're out. And that has changed, in my mind, the behavior and the attitude and the philosophy of coaches in Division Three. I mean, it's it's become dog eat dog. And what we have now is we have the Division One model, which is the head coach who coaches soccer, and an assistant coach, and they are in in most Division Three programs. They are responsible to bring in X number of students, whether they need them or not, to, because you know how difficult it is admissions in today's day and age. It's tough. It's tough. And they have to win. That's how it is. And that has changed so many, so many aspects of, in my opinion, college coaching. But as a faculty member in the classroom every day, I can serve as a role model to our players, telling them that education is important, that academics are important. The only reason I got my PhD it doesn't make me a better person or teacher or coach. But what it does do is it helps me serve as a role model to my players when they say Dr. Martin, although they call me Jay, but they know they know Dr. Martin. Um, I serve as a role model saying, hey, fellas, I have a Ph.D. Academics are really, really important. And uh, so and a lot of the a lot of the players on their academic advisor as well. I, I take that role very seriously. And um, so I just think we've been it's been a benefit for me to be a faculty member as well and besides i i mean you sat through one of my classes and you probably will go directly to heaven for doing so but i enjoy teaching i enjoy it i enjoy it a lot so so i think you know the 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 whole landscape in division three and the ncaa has changed uh dramatically no, that's huge. Um, I want to kind of now transition to, we touched on it, how important the mentality is and what you believe in. I, I'm on the same boat. 
I'm not a firm believer that talent gets you the stuff. I no. think it's from the neck up in anything, not only soccer, not only football, not in athletics, in life. It's your mindset on the way you attack life and the way you view life. It's how you take setbacks. How do you visualize it? How do you embrace it? If your failures look like for you uh, an opportunity for you to step up and learn from your failures, that's the mindset to have to keep growing. And my na- the name of the game for me is if you stick in a passionate thing that you love a lot, it's, it's bound that you're going to become successful in it. It's about sticking it out, persevering, and getting there. I want to kind of touch base with you, uh, Jay, about what is it um, in having the mindset, the, the mentality, when you're looking at your athletes or some that have it or some you've got to kind of guide to incorporate in, what are the qualities to be competing at the level under you that you look at as a coach that they need to become that student athlete? That's another good question. Um, But John, the problem is um, high school players come to us without a growth mindset at all. In fact, it's few and far between whose club or high school school coaches talk about the mental side at all because you are influenced a great deal by your coaches. And if your coaches didn't talk about mindset, then you had to go out and when you became a professional, go out and get to get better. You did reading, you did research and so on and so forth. And now you figured out how important that is. So we have a program that each young man that comes in this program, here it is. They get, a, they get a binder, and the binder has eight different chapters, and it's all about mental toughness, the entire binder. Um, there's an introduction, then we talk about anxiety, positive self-talk, goal setting, how to build confidence, how to improve your focus and concentration, the importance of pregame rituals, and then there's an evaluation at the end. And uh, now this year it's been a little different and difficult, but um, next week we are starting out on our bleaches, which we've marked out with tape, and we will go through one chapter or two chapters of these a week until we're finished. Each chapter has um, handouts for the guys to fill in. When we talk about positive self-talk, one of their homework assignments is to create a positive self, self-talk script. Pre-game rituals. What is their pre-game ritual? They have to tell me exactly what it is and so on and so forth. So, um, so from, from the beginning here, uh, we introduce the mental side. In fact, Sean, to be honest with you, my assistant coach, Matt Weiss, does, does most of the field training now. I'm out there and I throw in my two cents worth and so on and so forth. As I said, I'm 71, and sometimes at the end of the day, I'm a little bit tired. I do all the mental stuff. I do all what Bill Besick from England calls the software of coaching. You know, we have a mentor program going on that we're going to institute today. We have all of these programs that deal with off-the-field preparation. And your comment about how important 
the mental side is, there's a book written by Jeff Colvin. I don't know if you've seen it. And it's called Talent is Overrated. Mm. And his premise is, once you make a team, whatever team it is, Ohio Wesleyan, my son's USL team, the Columbus crew, whatever team it is, once you make the team, then that certifies that you're talented enough to play at that level. But to get ahead, you've got to work on the mental side. That's how it is. And he talks about hard work and he talks about effort and all of these things that are non-technique or skill related that separate, separate the good, the average from the good and the good from the very good. And it's right here. You're 100% correct. It's right here. And there are just so many, so many moving parts about this. You know, one of the things I was just looking at this and thinking, one of the, I should add a new chapter to this about attitude because it's, you, you know how important and how much attitude affects performance. I mean, that's how it is. I have, I've got a lot of theories that, that have developed over the years. One is, I'll talk to you about a former Los Angeles Laker and uh, a former Boston Celtic, because I'm from Boston. I'm convinced that the elite athletes are elite because they love the game, they respect the game, and they have fun playing the game. And the money and all the accolades come with that. Larry Bird and Magic Johnson mm. didn't play basketball to make money. They played it because they loved it. And the money happened. And a lot of money happened in both, both circumstances. But we have a gymnasium, an old gymnasium on campus. And I always tell my students, I know that if Magic and Bird were playing one-on-one -on -one in the old Edwards gym, they would play as hard against each other as they did in all those NBA finals in the 1980s because they love playing the game and they have fun. And Sean, that's all about attitude. One of the things that we do here at Ohio Wesleyan is we have fun. Every practice session is fun. It doesn't mean we don't work hard because we do. But how do athletes have fun? They have fun competing. So everything we do in, in training the guys are competing against each other. And Matt, the assistant coach, will send out once a week, and they all get points. You get points for everything. We do, a, we do a shooting activity. If it goes in, you get a point or whatever. He's, he'll send out the list once a week of who's number one on the team in accruing points and who's bottom. And every time – the guys got it yesterday for this week. Every time that happens – the training session that afternoon is great because now the guys at the bottom want to get to the top. The guys at the top want to stay there. The competitive aspect, they're giving each other crap on the field and, um, and, 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 it, and it really helps. And then we do it again. Next week, we do it again. So I think, I think, that, I think the job of the coach I don't have a magic wand and I can't make you an all American, Sean. Yep. That's just how it is. I can't do it. But what I can do is create an environment in which you can get better. That's hopefully the coaching and you want to get better. That's your motivation. The bottom line, your motivation. So the environment at Ohio Wesleyan soccer is motivating, challenging, and fun. Everything we do 
is fun. I want these guys looking forward to coming up training all day long. And when they leave, I want a smile on their face. Uh, and again, that doesn't mean we don't work hard because we do, but, but the guys enjoy it. And intrinsic motivation, as you know, and even achievement motivation are key to success, right? I mean, that's how it is. If you love what you're doing and if you're having fun, there's a good chance that you will be successful because you, you, don't, you don't think about the outcome. You think about the process. You think about, you think about how can I get better every day and, and so on and so forth. So that's, that's our coaching philosophy here, and, and that's what happens. And, you know, I don't know if you've looked up the record or anything, and it doesn't matter, but we've won a lot of games here, a ton of games here. And, um, and my philosophy hasn't changed in 44 years. It's, it's, it's the same. And... Um, the generation of players is a little bit different. Of course, every few years, I don't know what the magic number is, every few years. But in the end, if they're competitive and they're good athletes, then they will buy into this. They'll buy into this philosophy. Yeah. Uh, I, I want to kind of transition into a scenario. I'm a father. Okay. I have a kid. He's 14. He's not an athlete. He, he's not the most talented football soccer player he loves the game and he has a relentless work ethic as a father I, I i ended up running into you i'm like jay you know what i just found out that your son is a usl coach i want right now at 14 my kid loves it he's working hard in it what and he's but he's not an athlete and he had, doesn't have the talent there but he wants to see what are the basics to get what are the curriculum to get to first come to you but then hopefully work his thing off to go to usl obviously i get it there is no magic wand uh in making those things happen but to increase let's say the lottery ticket to increase the chances to have that hope of getting there if i'm coming up to you what would you recommend for like i said i'm that parent that doesn't know the game I want to see what's the proper environment to put him to better set it up to come to your program and then from your program go to maybe a USL. Mm -hmm. Again, another good question, and I appreciate it, Sean. Um, and I will say that your description of your son has, it tells me that he's halfway there, and that is the work ethic. Um, I see more and more each year that these kids, especially good players, don't have the work ethic. Here's another one of my theories. So Sean, you're a really good youth player and you scored 700 goals in youth soccer. You scored three goals before halftime, every single game. And you, because you were maybe physically superior, faster, maybe bigger than your peer group, uh, you didn't have to work very hard to be successful. All of a sudden, you end up in a college where the players may not be as technically good as you, but they're bigger, they're stronger, and they're faster than the peer group that you competed in. What happens is with these a lot of these great players is they don't know what to do. They have no clue what to do. And again, um, Carol Dweck's book called mindset i recommend for all your listeners it's a tremendous book it talks about the fixed mindset versus the growth mindset and the growth mindset is 
those of us who never stop learning and never stop working and know that we're not there yet, that, that we're an unfinished product, where the fixed mindset is, hey, I'm pretty good. I don't have to work very hard and so on. And even at my son's level, USL Championship, he's got guys out there who are getting paid to play soccer, who are professional soccer players, who don't work very hard, Sean. It's not necessarily their fault. They were never taught how to work hard because, Sean, they didn't have to, to score all of these goals. They didn't have to. And I've had dozens, unfortunately, of those types of players, and it's really hard to change it. But it's not hard to change a player who works extremely hard and have that player clean up technically, understand the game tactically, and stay physically fit. No coach is going to cut the fittest guy on their team. No coach. I guarantee it. And so there's always a spot on a team for somebody who's a hard worker and who, um, and who uh, is fit always, always a place for, for those guys. And so I, I think, you know, um, I'm against youth kids playing up. I just think there's a social ramification of that that isn't good. But get this, I would tell this father or whomever, get this young man in as competitive an environment as possible. And when I say that, I'm not only talking about the games, these, these, um, teams are playing. I'm talking about the training sessions. Are the training sessions competitive? Does the coach put it to the guys and make them work hard every single training session? I mean, our training sessions are about 80 minutes long because our guys can't go much longer after that because they work extremely hard. Not 100%, but the majority. By the time they're juniors, they're all working really hard. Freshmen have to learn it. You know, sophomores, half of them have learned it, half of them haven't. By the time they're juniors, they're ready to go. But to me, the training session is more important than the game because um, training session is where you make mistakes to improve your game. The training, the training session is where you try things. You don't try new things in a game. That creates mistakes. Mistakes create a negative mindset, and the, oftentimes the performance of the individual goes down the tubes. You try stuff in the training ground, and when you become proficient at it, you can bring that to the game, not until you've done it in the training ground. I always tell my classes, and I teach one of my classes is the, the men mental aspects of sport. So we know Michael Jordan, and we know Larry Bird, my hero. Michael Jordan's skill set is huge, right? Larry Bird's skill set isn't even close to Michael Jordan's. And yet Bird was considered one of the greatest pl players ever. Why, Sean? Because he knew what he could do, and that's all he did. And he did it over and over and over. That's it. It wasn't hard. He didn't try to drive the lane and dunk over six guys. He couldn't do that. Why even try it? But he could spot up for a three and hit it. And so one of the things we have to teach, and this is what that last that last chapter in my book here is the evaluation. We have to teach our athletes to honestly evaluate themselves. Honestly, look in the mirror. What do I do well? Where do I need work? And then 
they move forward. And when they go to a game, they only bring what they do well. Now, during practice, we hope that they add to that and make that make make their war chest a little bit bigger. But if you do, if you have an athlete, and you know this, you're a coach. If you have an athlete, consistency is one of the most important factors that coaches want, isn't it? If we have consistent players, we're happy as hell, right? I don't want a player who's up here one day and down here. That, that doesn't help. You're consistent if you know what you can do, and that's all that you do, and you do it over and over and over. So that's another piece of advice. What happens is, in the description of your son, what happens is he puts pressure on himself to do what the best player on the team can do. He can't do it, so don't even try. It just doesn't matter. It does not matter. He can do some things that that guy can't do. So keep doing that over and over and over. Now, part of the problem is, Sean, in my you're getting a lot of my opinions today. Part of the part of the problem is that we not all coaches understand that, right? They look out at a group of people and they want to they want to bring the most skilled people on their team. What they don't understand is it takes more than just skilled people to put a team together to be successful. And, you know, and, and we're just not there yet. And again, it's my criticism of coaches not taking the time to, to, to learn about mindset and mental toughness and those types of things. They just don't do it. And, and, and why, Sean? Because they were good players. Right? When they played, they didn't need mental toughness to be successful. So they're thinking, well, I don't have to bring this to my team. I was good enough without it. My, my son, again, is a great example of that. When he was here at Ohio West, and he was a two or three time, two time All-America, maybe, I can't remember. And we did all this mental stuff that I have all of my desk here in front of me. Um, he didn't buy in at all because he was good. And he was good without positive self-talk and all those things. Ironically, now that he's been coaching and he coached nine or 10 years in division one at Wake Forest and now the USL, now he knows how important the mental side is. He calls me all the time. I, he's flown me out to DC. He's he, USL team is Loudoun United, which is the second team for, for, um, for DC United. I've gone out to talk to his teams, you know, for the last four or five years about men, about mental toughness. I went out two weeks ago took a day off, went out there and worked with his team about, to be honest with you, I can't remember what we talked about. Uh, mindset, mindset, and um, Q words, and positive self-talk, and, and things like that. So he knows how important that stuff is. I think it's, uh, I get a good laugh when he calls me up and goes, Dad, you remember that goal-setting stuff that we did when I was at Wesley? And I go, what do you mean we did? You didn't do any of that stuff, Ryan. <laughs> but anyway, but now he does. Now he, now he gets it and understands it. No, that's uh, that's brilliant, uh, Jay. And I know we're we're going on the mentality because what I want to kind of now transition to is 2020. And I think this year, um, in our sports community, uh, our cages have been rattled. Uh, we've been kind of shooken up. Um, the the sport we love uh, has been taken away. It's been put on pause. Um, at the beginning of the year where it all happened, we think it's something like just a quick one, a quick timeout, and we're getting back in it. As it goes longer and longer, um, 
we have to figure out ways of how to keep our players engaged, determined, motivated, inspired in a, in a time where the younger players, they just want to play as much as you can do zoom, you can do stuff. They need shoulder to shoulder. They need to be in the trenches. They need to be competitive. They miss that. There's something in that, that they love. What I want to say within your program what have you guys been innovative about in kind of working with, with your staff and you guys had to keep fine-tuning it to keep your players engaged? And also, second part, what do you recommend for players in this time should be a priority of focusing on? Uh, if we can kind of dive into that. Yeah. Um, during the height of the pandemic, we had, and you just mentioned it, we had weekly Zoom meetings with the guys where we brought in guest speakers. We had LeBron James's high school coach, who's now a Division I college coach. We had George Carl, a former NBA coach. We had a variety of not just soccer people. Not, neither one of those guys were soccer people at all. We had a variety. We had some of my uh, alums who are in, in very successful in business or what have you. My son, Ryan, came on as a successful coach. And, um, and the guys really enjoyed that. And I think they enjoyed it for a number of reasons. As I said, it wasn't all soccer. It was across the spectrum. We had as many of our former players talk about business success as we had Ryan, my son, about soccer and sports success and George Carl and these, these other people. So they really enjoyed it. Once we got on campus, which was August 14, 15, in that, in that area, we have been allowed to train, but of course, our, our schedule is gone. So what we've sold to the guys is, and I think this is something that you can take to your teams and to your coaches, and I, and I mean this sincerely, I've enjoyed this um, time working with the guys. Hmm. Because in a regular season, Sean, we play Wednesday and Saturday. After preseason, that gives us very little time to teach the game, doesn't it? The only day of the week where we can actually do some teaching in that scenario is Monday. And then Tuesday is preparation for Wednesday. Thursday is regeneration. Friday is preparation for Saturday. So we've sold it to the guys about, hey, we are going to get better. We are actually going to take the time to teach you things that we don't have time for in a, in a regular season. And we promise them, you know, every day we end with a game, which they like, and we are going to have some intra-squad games on the field with uniforms, with referees, and bike the parents in a couple weeks and so on and so forth. But the guys have really embraced this concept that they're getting better as soccer players, that they're learning things. And as I said, it's, it's great. You know, today we, we have a progression going today. We're doing, um, let's see, yesterday we did two V one to two V two. Today we're doing uh three V two to two, three, uh, uh, to three V three in a, in a progression. And if they don't get it, John, we can take the time to help them get it, you know, and, 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 uh, because there's no game tomorrow. I mean, that's just how it is. I mean, yes, we'd like to play. Don't get me wrong. But I'm, in the end, I hope I'm viewed as an educator. And in the end, we're teaching. And I love teaching. And, you know, so far, knock on wood, so far the guys have embraced it. 
if that makes any sense. Yeah. I think it's how you sell it. I think one of the jobs of a coach is you got to be a salesman. You got to stand up in front of the team and use, you mentioned it some, a few moments ago, use your personality, your sense of humor and some things to really get them to jump all over this and, and say, Hey, Jay's right. I can become a better player. And yesterday, ironically that we're talking today, but yesterday was the first training session where I really felt we're making tremendous progress with these guys because how many of these guys are introduced or even taught the concepts of 2v1 before they get here? And my experience tells me over the years, not many, not many, you know, and so now, you know, here's what you have to do. Man with the ball, take on the defender, blah, 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 blah. Man off the ball, make some runs. They never heard this stuff before. And so they, they're, they're getting better. And, you know, they're talking about a modified schedule in the spring. I doubt that will happen yeah. just, just because the schools like ours, we only have so many facilities. And if we, if we have all the fall sports playing in the spring, I mean, Sean, it's going to be a nightmare. I mean, you know, all the facilities are going to be run down. We'll have teams practicing at 10 o'clock at night. I just don't think it's feasible. But the guys, the guys are getting better. That's, that's huge. That's huge. And it, it ties in into how is the priority about – it's the same thing what I've reminded to our players when they ask, what should we do? Look, embrace the technical development. And right. Especially in America, we, at a younger age, the problem is – it's outrageous when they get to 18 and the players you see can't even juggle a ball because they've been enforced that we got to win at eight. We got to win at nine. Winning shouldn't be a deal at eight, nine. It should be individual development. If a player can't strike a ball or juggle, they shouldn't be allowed to win. Don't win playing the wrong way. You know, develop technically. Let's play a good brand. So whenever coaches like yourself, coaches at USL like your son, or getting those players, you're like, wow, I can do more tactically because the grassroots in America have, are giving us more options. And I think that's what we got to kind of, jobs shouldn't be on the line at those ages. It should be more at your level, higher level, that 18 where it demands. But I agree, it should be a priority of technical de- development. I want to transition into some fun questions to kind of um, conclude our interview is, and you can go in any sports. I know we talked about it in any sports. It, I mean, you are a soccer football coach. It can be that, but it can be any sports. Okay. I want to talk about three situations or three players and, uh, and that vice versa. Your favorite player of all time. And the reason I say any sports, I want you to elaborate. Why is he your favorite? Your favorite team of all time. And like I said, it could be a moment of, a childhood team that kind of got you going, got your juices in sports. And then last one, your favorite moment, memorable moment. And it can be in sports. It can be out of sports of you witnessing if it's anything. Favorable moment. Okay. Before I answer this, I have to give you just a little background about me. I was and always will be an awful soccer player. I had very few highlights as a soccer player. I started soccer when my high school basketball coach gave me the choice of playing soccer to get fit for basketball or cross country. And running through the woods in my underwear in New England in November was not attractive to me at all. 
So I started soccer when I was a junior in high school. And as a result of that, Sean, was never any good. I think in college, I went to Springfield College, I think I started two, two games in soccer because there was an epidemic on the team and like I was the only one left. And, <laughs> um, but I, I loved basketball and I was an All-America lacrosse player. When I graduated from college in 1971, I signed a contract to play basketball in Germany, in Munich, Germany. And it was the best thing that happened to my soccer career. I went to Munich, Germany, where I was immersed in a soccer culture. At the time, Bayern Munich, along with Ajax, the team behind you, were the two best teams in Europe. And, um, and the German national team was preparing for the 74 World Cup. This was, in, this was in June of 71, I went over. They were preparing for the 74 World Cup at home. Um, so every morning, I lived in Northern Munich, and Bayern Munich and 1860 trained in Southern Munich. So every morning I would go down to watch them play because there were no professional basketball team. I was on the professional basketball team. It was, wasn't very good. And so, and we're talking about Franz Beckenbauer, Gerd Mueller, Sepp Meyer, George Schwarzenbeck, Betty Volks. We're talking about, for all intent and purposes, half the German national team. In fact, Helmut Schoen, the German national team's coach was at all those trainings because he lived in Munich. We got to be decent friends. But um, so it really turned me on to soccer. When I could see soccer at a level that I had never seen before in my life, coming from USA in the 60s and 70s where soccer was, if it existed, was not very good, to seeing what these guys could do with the ball and to go to the Olympic Stadium in Munich in Northern to watch Bayern Munich play in front of 77,000 people. I'm sitting there going, what the hell is this? This is unbelievable. So that helped me. Then, then I was traded to Dusseldorf and it was the same situation. In Dusseldorf, I could see a Bundesliga game on Saturday, drive across the border to Holland. We were only 18 miles from Holland and see a Dutch game on Sunday. So I, I, I got really immersed in soccer and decided when I was living in Europe that I was going to be a soccer coach. And I really think, Sean, that a coach is a coach is a coach. I think I could coach almost anything but American football because I've never ever even done that. I don't even watch American football. But I, but I think I could coach basketball. I could coach lacrosse and so, and so on and so forth. So with that little background, I'll answer these questions. My favorite player of all time was Larry Bird, because to me, he was the consummate team player. And I'm all about the team. He could have led the NBA in scoring almost any year that he played, but he never did. Not one time. I don't know if you know that. In fact, no Boston Celtic has ever led the NBA in scoring because their, their ethos is team play. He was, uh, the only thing he couldn't do on the basketball floor was defend, you know, because believe it or not, he wasn't a great athlete. He was a great shooter, a great rebounder, unbelievable passer of the ball. But everything he did was focused on the team winning, you know, and, and so to me, that was very, very impressive. And remember, high school and college, I'm, you know, I'm a basketball player and a lacrosse player. Soccer was kind of a kill time in the fall. So my favorite team 
This is this is a toss up. I got I can't answer one. I'm sorry. Which means you know that's fine. That's I'm a, fine. I'm a, some kind of political guy here. The Celtics of '86, which I think mm-hmm. one of the best NBA teams of all time. Mm-hmm. They wall and they won the. They they were like uh, they, they they lost like seven games in the season. Went right through the playoffs and so on. And again, the team to me epitomized winning and winning together. It wasn't about Bird. It wasn't about Bill Walton. It wasn't about Dennis Johnson. It was about the team. And the team was important. And then secondly, Bayern Munich. When I, you know, you know how it is. What year? Move. What year of the Bayern Munich? Which one was it? I would say the 77-78 Bayern Munich team. The first one I started to follow. Yeah. They won the Champions League in those days when it was really the Champions League. It's been watered down a little bit. It's still very entertaining. Don't get me wrong. In fact, they beat Ajax for the champion. Uh, Ajax, Bayern Munich in that era was something oh, else. Unbelievable. Cruyff, Naskins. I mean, it was unbelievable. In fact, in my other office, I have a, I have a picture of Franz Beckenbauer and Johann Cruyff changing the pennants before the 74 World Cup final. And they both signed it for me. And it's hanging. It's one of my prized possessions. It's hanging in my other office. But yes, that team, I really got into them. And it was, as I told you a moment ago, it was eye-opening. It was absolutely eye-opening. And I was like, are you kidding me? Not only were these guys great athletes, they were, I mean, Beckham, Beckenbauer could, could play any sport. He was such a good athlete. Gerd Mueller, not so much. But Beckenbauer was unbelievable. Elegant, cool, sleek, fast, unbelievable. So those are my two teams. My most memorable moment, and I've got to say, I've had, I've been very lucky to have had a lot of them. You can have a couple. You can have a couple. I mean, not only as a player, but as, as a coach, I've had some great moments. Um, My number one, though, would be in 1972. Mm. Actually, yes, in 1972, now, the Summer Olympics were going to be held in Munich in 1972. It was the first international sporting event that Germany was allowed to even participate in since World War II. So Munich was all excited, the Germans were all excited, and so on. One of the things that happens to Olympic cities is that they have to, they have to run a professional, I'm sorry, an Olympic game one year before the Olympics start to make sure everything's going well in the venues and all those other things. My basketball team was chosen to open up the basketball venue in Munich in April, I believe, of, no, August of 71. And we would, they chose the Russian national team to play us. And um, I, I mean, it's, it's probably too long of a story to tell, but I'll tell you what happened in the end. We were ahead set by 17 points at halftime. But the Russian center, one of the biggest people I've ever seen in my life, <laughs> in the first half, he was sick, but he started playing in the second half. And they chipped away, chipped away, chipped away. With nine seconds left, he, he made a layup that put him ahead by one point. And Sean, I just knew I was going to make this basket. I just knew it. And everything slowed down. I was in a state of flow. Everything, there was nine seconds left, which is, a long time in basketball. Everything slowed down. 
I got the ball inbounded by one of my buddies on the team, Archie Bester. I took two dribbles to midcourt and I let it go. And I stood there like this, arms out, and it hit nothing but net in front of 12,000 crazy Germans. And um, that's one of two times in my life that I got into the mental flow in my life. And it was really kind of cool. You know, I was on the front page of the Süddeutsche Zeitung, the South German newspaper the next day, and so on and so forth. But anyway, unfortunately, I didn't have many soccer highlights, but I've had a lot of soccer highlights coaching. Obviously, two national championships have been great. But, you know, people tell me, ask me all the time, what are, you, what, are you, what, what are your great moments as a coach? And people think I'm giving them a line of crap, and I'm not. The greatest thing that happens each year to me as a coach is to watch my players get their diploma in May. I mean that. National championships, we've won 27 conference championships. We've been to the finals. We've been to the NCAA tournament 41 years out of 43. All of those are good moments, but that's the best moment, if that makes any sense. It, it makes exact sense. And I think I totally agree with that. Sometimes, for example, for example, when they ask me, parents or anyone, when I'm coaching, not the college game, even the youth level, I don't care if I lose every game. Knowing if my players are going to Division One, they're getting scholarships to Division Two. I have won. If I lost every game, I have no personal trophies at the youth game, but my players all developed and are able to go represent youth national team because that is the purpose of the youth game. Now in the college game, if I'm in the college game, you're in college, student athlete. Diploma should be the foundation of it when you go there too. The experience of you getting the championship is kind of like the domino effect. Same thing as a professional. I think we get lost in today's game. It's about the joy you have as a player, not the revenue or profits you're making financially as a professional. And I think some people think he gets paid the most. He's the best. He enjoys that money. But it's it's deeper in that. So I totally agree. Again, Jay, thank you so much for putting in the time to come on this, talk about the beautiful game. I want to kind of give you the platform to close us out with anything you have going, uh, plugs you want to make in, if it's your book, if it's if it's uh, your team, what season to look for, messages like that for our audience as well to kind of close us out. I would recommend to your listeners or whatever, um, the two books I mentioned, Jeff Colvin, C-O-L-V-I-N, Talent is Overrated, and Carol Dweck, D-W-E-C-K, Mindset, The Psychology of Success. Both of those books talk about the process. They don't talk about the outcome. And in soccer, as in life, if we focus on the process, the outcome will take care of itself. Bill Walsh, who was a very successful coach of the San Francisco football team, 49ers or whatever they're called, he wrote a book and it was called The Score Takes Care of Itself, which is self-explanatory. He was a revolutionary American football coach who figured it out that it was the process. And I think he won three Super Bowls in five years or something. You did very, very successful. So thank you for this. I appreciate it. Your listeners um, get better, focus on the process, and have a great day. 
Thank you again.